At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you have been with us uh, the last uh, several weeks in 2022, you know that we have been walking through a, a number of different messages in the book of Revelation. We began by seeing that Jesus is the Lord of the church, and we have continued, uh, beginning last Sunday, looking at how Jesus is also the Lord of heaven. Now, all of this is anchored inside of the book of Revelation that we've been reminded every week that this is a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. And so we get to learn more about Jesus, that he is the Lord of the church and that he is the Lord of heaven. And we'll see even more things as we go along. And today we're going to continue our study of this great book by looking at part two of our Lord of Heaven series, looking at the first seven verses of chapter five. But before we look at those verses together, I, I want to just uh, have us do an exercise here that is a game of what if. Okay, so I want us to to have a a game of what if. We're going to think about what if something were true. And the what if question I have for you today is this. What if Jesus is retired? What if he's retired? I mean, what if Jesus came to this earth, was born in Bethlehem, lived out his days, taught amazing sermons, gave a perfect example of what God was like, Perform miracles, healing the blind and the lame and the deaf and raising even the dead? And what if at the end of his days he was crucified on a cross and even resurrected from the grave? What if all of that was true? But what if Jesus currently was retired? What if when he got to heaven he just retired somehow? Like, I don't even know what that would look like, but was not currently doing anything, vacated responsibility. Said, now it's time for others to do some stuff. What if Jesus currently was retired? How would that, how would that strike you? Well, honestly, if we think about this, some of us might go, well, isn't that what he is doing? I mean, he did all those things you said, and now he is you know, ascended to heaven, is he not retired in a a gated community, no less, in heaven? You might wonder about that. But friends, the reality is Jesus is risen. He has ascended into glory. He is not retired. He is currently occupying a massive role in all of eternity. And he is preparing for an even more massive thing that is upcoming. So he is not retired he is risen. But what if he was retired at this point? Well, friends, if we are thinking clearly about that question, if we understood really what it was all about, you know how we would respond? We would weep and weep. Now, why would we do so? We would weep because the one who confronted that very thought wept and wept. And that is the Apostle John who God invites to come to heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and experience a a divine drama unfold before him so he could describe it to us. But part of the drama that he sees in heaven causes him to reflect on a Jesus-less eternity. And it caused him to weep. Why? We'll see so today. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Revelation chapter 5. 
want us to look at the first seven verses of Revelation 5. We're going to spend all of our time in these seven verses. So I want to read them for us, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations today. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they worshiped. Now, in these seven verses today, I want us to see a couple of very important things. What are they? The first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to reflect on the hopeless discouragement of a Jesus-less eternity. What would eternity be like? What is heaven like? What is the world that we live in like if Jesus is retired and not risen in glory? Well, John reflects on that, these verses at the beginning of chapter 5. Now, it helps us to understand the context. And so I want to remind us of what we saw last week. Last week in chapter 4, John is invited to come up into heaven. When we get to chapter 5, John is still in heaven. So you can imagine John in the Spirit is viewing heaven, the very throne room of God. That's where he is. And he sees God the Father seated on a throne surrounded by an emerald rainbow and glimmering like a diamond. What an amazing scene that John sees in heaven. Not only does he see God the Father on the throne, but he sees four angelic creatures that look like uh, different things representing all of creation, and they're, they're flying about and they're proclaiming the holiness of God day and night. Not only does he see those angelic creatures, but he also sees 24 elders, representative of of people who have lived on this earth and have trusted in God and now find themselves in heaven given the gifts that Christ has promised. So John gets to heaven and he sees the Father on the throne and the angelic creatures and the 24 elders. And we think that is an amazing vision. And yet, he wept. And he wept loudly. Now, why was he weeping? You know, we might ask a a relevant question. Was he weeping tears of joy here? I mean, we have experienced that, have we not? You hear a beautiful song, it brings a tear to your eye. You see an amazing work of art, and it it makes you a little weepy. Uh, You you have a conversation that warms your heart, and, and you begin to tear up. We've experienced those kinds of tears. And yet, those aren't the kinds of tears that John is weeping here. He's not crying tears of sentiment. He's crying tears of 
regret and confusion and pain? Why is John in his vision of heaven crying and weeping loudly? Well, it had to do with this little scroll. Now, we'll talk in a moment about what the scroll was all about, but his tears seemed to focus on this scroll. There, there was a scroll in heaven that, that was firmly planted in the right hand of God the Father, the one seated on the throne. And, and this, this scroll would have reminded John of a very important document. You can imagine if you took your bulletin and you rolled it up, that was what a scroll might have looked like. And there was writing all over this scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now, a scroll that was sealed with a seal would have looked to John's eyes like a contract. If In the ancient world, if I wanted to sell my wagon to, to Dave, I, I, I might draw up a contract, and I would put a seal on it, the Robinson stamp of approval, and I would send it over so that only Dave would be able to open it because it was an agreement between he and I. And the more seals that were on a document, the more important it was. So when John sees this document in heaven, this scroll with seven seals, it tells him this is a very important document that includes writing inside it and on the backside. There's a lot of detail there. There's a lot going on, and he is is intrigued by this, this scroll. And when he sees this scroll in heaven in the right hand of God the Father, an angel steps up and begins to proclaim this question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? In other words, this scroll is there in heaven Who is going to tell us what is inside it? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Think about the implications of that statement. Angelic beings, eyes all over them, wings flying about heaven, the the picture of power. They are not worthy to open the scroll. 24 elders in heaven who had lived their life and are now resurrected in in heaven and and, and pictured their worshiping God, not worthy to open the scroll, not worthy to look inside it. No one in heaven is able to do so. And not only in heaven, but no one on earth. So John is there. You might think, well, maybe John could open it and read it for us. But no one on earth either. John, the last remaining of the apostles from the earth, not able to open the scroll and look inside it. Not anyone under the earth. If not John, then maybe one of the other apostles who had gone before him. Maybe Peter, who had already paid for his faith in Christ with his life. Or maybe Paul would be able to open it and read it. The answer, friends, was no. No one under the earth, no one who had gone before, was able to open the scroll and to look inside it. And so hearing this, that that no one is able in heaven, on earth, or under the earth to open the scroll... John begins to weep. Now, why was he weeping? Was he weeping because he just was so curious as to what's inside? I mean, have you ever had that moment where somebody said, I have a secret, but I can't tell you? And then all you begin to do is think, well, what's the secret? Come on, just tell me. Tremaine, tell me what the secret is. Come on, please, just just tell me what it is. That's what we do, right? Is it possible that he's just super curious? No, I don't think that's what was going on. I think it's something more significant than just curious what was inside that scroll. That scroll represented something very, very important. 
The scroll represented the deed of the universe. The world that God had created, that they were just worshiping him about in chapter 4. There is a scroll in heaven that represents who has authority to do something on the earth. I mean, keep in mind, John is looking and everything looks awesome in heaven. But John is very acquainted with the fact that there is hell on earth. And so though heaven is perfect, John is wondering, well, heaven is great, but who's going to do something about this mess upon the earth? And if that deed of the universe cannot be held or opened by anyone else, then heaven might be great, but our world has no hope. And he begins to weep. Even more so, though, we might understand that that scroll is representative of the plan of God for what is going to happen on the earth in the future. We know this because a little later on in Revelation, we'll get there eventually, in chapter 6 and following, the seals on that scroll begin to break. And when they do, God's plans begin to unfold upon the earth. And so this scroll, in, in very real terms, represents the authority to do something about the earth, as well as God's wise an intelligent plan for how and when those things should come to pass. So in this moment, John is, is looking at this scroll that is in the right hand of God the Father, and he is thinking, heaven may be great, but the world in which I live and the people that I love and the people in the churches back home, they, they, are, they are hopeless if all of this just stays here and nothing ever comes there. You ever felt that way? You ever looked around and thought, you know, heaven is wonderful, heaven's great, but we live in a very challenging place. This world feels like it's spinning out of control. Is there a plan, an intelligent plan, a wise plan for where it's headed? These are the questions that John was thinking, and it drove him to tears. In a, in a Jesusless eternity, with just a scroll in heaven that no one can hold and no one can open, provides no hope. For this earth. So, what happens in a Jesusless eternity? Well, I think one of two things is how we typically respond. If we imagine the universe without Jesus having the reins of the world in his hand, we tend to respond in one of two ways. One way that we respond is in despair. We just think this is broken and it has no hope. There is persecution of believers. There will be no justice. There, there, is, there is innocent people who are dying and there will be no justice. There is sickness and death that is taking the minds and the bodies of people that I know and love and there seems to be no relief. There is sin that is ravaging and there seems to be no deliverance. See, if we begin to think that, that this world is just spinning out of control, if we forget that Jesus is reigning on high, then we are tempted to have feelings of despair. Or we're tempted to feel like we need to take control. If we feel like this world is spinning, that, that, that no one is able to take the scroll, no one is able to take the reins, no one has an intelligent plan for where this is going, we begin to think it's all on us to make it happen. And that's a very difficult place to be because guess what? There is no one in heaven and guess what? There is no one on earth who is able to handle that role. 
And yet we're tempted to think that way and it drives us to despair. It's a vicious cycle. The world is broken, I need to control it. I control it, I become in despairing. I'm in despairing, I need to control back and forth and back and forth. Friends, if we just imagine Jesus retired and not risen, we are tempted to be living in a cycle of despair and control. But massive difference. The world is not leaderless. The universe is not spinning out of control. There is one who is able to take the scroll and open it and drive this bus to its appropriate conclusion. We just haven't seen him yet, but we're getting ready to. And an elder of heaven reminds us. So if we are in this cycle of living in hopeless discouragement because we have forgotten Jesus' role in heaven today, friends, we need to be encouraged this morning with the hope-filled encouragement of the living Christ. And this is what we see in verses five to seven in this vision of heaven. So how does it play out? Well, John is weeping and one of the elders comes over. So who are these elders? These elders are those who have gone before us, humans who have trusted in God and now find themselves in heaven. One of those elders comes over to John and like a big brother, he puts his arm around him and he says, I know that you're weeping, but you are missing something massive. You are missing the star of the show. And he begins to divert his attention in another direction. Friends, this is a great picture for us because if we are thinking that this world is spinning out of control, we need to remember not only heaven, but specifically Jesus' role in heaven today. And if we are coming alongside someone who is in that cycle of despair and control, how do we encourage them? We encourage them by reminding them of what John is reminded of in this moment in heaven. You want heavenly advice for encouraging a despairing soul? We have it in verses five to seven. Well, what does he tell him to behold? Well, he tells him to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is not... Jesus being pictured as a lion. We'll see how he is seen in just a moment. This is a title. This is a title. And it's a title that has its root all the way back in Genesis chapter 49. When Israel gives a blessing to his children, to his son Judah, inspired by the Spirit of God, he gives this blessing. You're going to be a lion, Judah, who will take a scepter and who will rule. It was a promise of of kingship that would come from Judah's line. And so what John is reminded of in this moment is that the one that was promised from Judah's line is the one who is standing now in heaven, ruling as a king. Not only does he give him this reminder of the line of the tribe of Judah, but he also says he's also the root of David. So not only was he to be a descendant of Judah, but he also would be a descendant of King David. See, it was God who said to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that, David, from your line I will establish a throne that will have a kingdom that will know no ends, both in space and in time. There was a promise that there was going to be a leader who would come from David's line. And what's wonderful is not only would it be the root uh, from David, but specifically here he says he would be the root of David. 
So David not only would have a descendant who would rule, but that descendant somehow was superior even to himself and had preexisted long before him. And who could do that but none other than Jesus Christ, who has existed eternally in the heavens, but was born as a descendant of David. And so he's reminded of these titles, of the promises from generation to generation that God had given to bring order and a kingdom to this earth. And he says, there is one who is fulfilling these roles, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. And he came and he conquered, past tense. What's being referred to here? What's being referred to is Jesus who came to this earth, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, demonstrated who God was to us in his word and in his deed, and then died on the cross to make payment for our sins and on the third day rose again. That is a conquering victory. And when John looks to heaven, he's he's reminded that the star of the show is the one that was promised from the line of Judah, the one that was promised from the line of David, the one who came and who conquered in his life. This is a reference very clearly to Jesus Christ. We are not to imagine a Jesus-less eternity. We are to imagine Jesus at the center of what God is doing now in heaven. He has conquered, just as Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 tell us, because he came and because he gave his life and because he conquered, he is the name now at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord of all. Well, after talking about that, making him worthy to open this scroll, he continues and he describes then what he sees. How does John now see Jesus in heaven. Well, he sees him pictured as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This draws to our minds what John said in his gospel when he remembered what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he saw him. John the Baptist in John 136 said of Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, anticipating the death he would die on the cross to make payment for our sins. Thinking of what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, 19, that saw the blood of Jesus like the blood of a lamb shed for our forgiveness of sins. Jesus in heaven right now is pictured as a lamb standing as though slain, reminding us of what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Think of all the ways Jesus could be remembered in heaven. In heaven, he is pictured as a lamb. And this is not a one-off, friends. You know how many times Jesus is referred to as the lamb in the book of Revelation? Remember, Revelation is a book that we often associate with judgment because there's gonna be judgment that comes to the earth. A large section of the book is that. But you know what is such a common title of Jesus in Revelation? It's the word lamb. 28 times Jesus is called the lamb in the book of Revelation. A reminder of what he has done for us in his death on the cross. Now, after seeing the lamb that was slain, further descriptions are given of him. He sees Jesus pictured as the lamb, and then he begins to notice some other things about him. He says that this lamb that was standing as though it had been slain had seven horns on its head. The horn is a a symbol inside of a number of different contexts of power, of power. We, we might think of that in terms of, of other things that we, we think about in 
horns like a, a, rhin, a rhinoceros has a horn. It's, a, it's an animal that we associate with power and strength. Or a triceratops has a horn in the dinosaur world. It has power and strength. It, it speaks to his might. And by saying that he has seven horns, it's a picture that Jesus has all of the power. It's a reminder in his appearance that he has all power. The, the theological term that we might use to describe someone with all power is that he is omnipotent. There is nothing that he can't do. The lamb standing as though slain is pictured as having all power in heaven. Not only that, it's pictured as, he's pictured as having seven eyes. What do the eyes represent? The eyes represent the ability to see everything. We saw that with the eyes that were on the angelic creatures so they could provide accurate testimony of what they saw of God in heaven last week. Jesus here is described as having seven eyes, the idea that he understands everything that goes on. He has all knowledge. And what do we call one who has all knowledge? This is omniscience. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. And further, he's described as having about him the seven spirits of God. We've seen this throughout Revelation. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, all of the Spirit of God that Jesus has access to and he's working in concert with is said here to be sent out into all the world. And so we have the idea of omnipresence. Omnipotence with the horns, omniscience with the eyes, omnipresence with the spirit. But he just keeps going. He says this one who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, who is pictured as a lamb as though slain, walks right up to God the Father and takes the scroll from his right hand. Now remember This is the scroll that no one was able to grab, no one was able to open, and no one was able to read. And when he looks around, he weeps because he thinks there's nothing that can be done. And then here comes the lamb, and he just goes walking right up and grabs it. And nobody in heaven gasps. Nobody in heaven goes, what? They all see it, and they go, yes. There's the one. I love this because it reminds us that Jesus here is taking the reins of history. He's grabbing the deed of the earth. He is getting ready to enact and unfold God's wise and intelligent plan for this planet in the days ahead. Now, when we think and reflect on this idea, I want to share with us a long quote from Jim Hamilton in his commentary on Revelation because I think it really helps us grasp what's going on here. He says, this picture of Jesus grabbing the scroll, he says, this is breathtaking audacity. We saw in 5.3 that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And yet Jesus marches right up to the Father, seated on the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures and crying, holy, holy, holy. And in full view of the 24 elders, he takes that scroll. Crucified, dead, buried, raised. Now he assertively takes the reins of history. Not retired, he assertively takes the reins of history. That's what this symbolizes. 
Jesus takes the scroll that describes the events of the end, whereby all the wrongs will be set right, all injustices accounted for, all crimes avenged. He takes it from the right hand of the Father, and the Father doesn't resist him. The four living creatures don't object, and the 24 elders do not stand in his way. This symbolic action shows that Jesus has taken control of history. Amen? Amen. Now, not only do we see Jesus taking control of history, but once he does symbolically in the the presence of God and the God the Father in heaven. He's worshiped. We're going to see that next week. Three different songs erupt around heaven where, where this truth is celebrated and proclaimed. And, and think about the implication of that. In heaven, in the presence of God the Father, Jesus is worshiped. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus? I mean, think about this. The same God who says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, allows worship of Jesus, not just in some far corner of the earth, but in the very throne room of God the Father in heaven. Jesus is worshiped. What does that tell us? Well, what do you call the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, has the reins of history, and is worshiped in heaven. What do you call this one? I'm serious. What do you call him? That's exactly right. You call him God. This is such a clear, clear picture for us of Jesus' identity as God. No question. And that is the intended impact of this vision in heaven. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, we do not worship a babe in a manger or a corpse on a cross. I don't mean by that, and he doesn't mean by that, that we are not to remember and and think about, reflect upon what Jesus did in his incarnation or in his death on the cross. Those are obviously things that we remember and we celebrate. But Jesus today is not a baby or a corpse. Jesus today is the living, reigning lamb of God who is in the midst of all in heaven. Again, Jim Hamilton helps us with this. He says, this is nothing less than stupendous. Jesus walks right up to the Father, lays his hands on the scroll, and all heaven responds by praising Jesus. Is there any way that John could have more clearly communicated that Jesus is very God of very God, light from light, God from God, of the same essence as the Father? Even if John had simply stated Jesus is God, it would not have portrayed the deity of Christ as clearly as this episode. It's not just a word or a title. It is who he is. Friends, there is not a world spinning out of control. And there is not a world that no one in heaven cares about. We live in a world that is being sat sovereignly over by a loving Savior who bled and died for us, who right now has taken the reins of history and is preparing his good, wise, and intelligent plan to happen upon the earth. So, like the elder who put his arm around John, how might we encourage one another with this truth? Well, first thing, 
we need to be reminded that he has the world on his shoulders, so we do not have to bear that weight. I don't know how many of you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Um, I've woken up that way before. You wake up and it just for some reason the world is heavier at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's heavy because in that moment we just fixate on the pressures around us and, and our desire to lift them off of us in our own strength so that we might be able to control it in some way. Friends, we need to be reminded that the weight of the world was never intended to be supported by our shoulders. Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll, and he has done so. Second thing we encourage each other with, he has shed his blood for your sins so that you can be forgiven. And right now in heaven, there is a reminder of what Jesus has done so that we might be forgiven. Our forgiveness is not Uh, something we earn through our effort. It is something he purchased with his death. We need to be reminded of that. We make much of that because even in heaven today, much is made of the death of Christ on our behalf. Next thing, he has risen to heaven so that we have a future. I love that. He's not retired so, so that when we get to heaven, it won't be, hey, I'm here because I trusted in Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, oh yeah, I remember him. He was there a long time ago. He's way back in the back of the community. Let me go see if I can find him. That's not the picture that we see. We see Jesus risen and reigning so that when we get to heaven, if we have trusted in him, Jesus will look at us and say, welcome son, welcome daughter. Come into and enjoy this provision together. Our hope and our security is found in him. And lastly, he has the reins of history. So he's the one who's driving this bus. Friends, what a, what a blessing we have to remember this. And God has given us this amazing picture in Revelation 5 to cement for us the reality that this world is in his hands. Now, as we prepare to, to, to wrap up this service and, and remember this hope-filled encouragement that we have because we have a living Christ, I want us to, 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 to sing a song together that I think so accurately portrays the reality that we just read about in Revelation 5. You know, it's, it's amazing how songs and melodies can take us right back to uh, a passage of Scripture. And I, I will want this song to do that not just for this moment, but for moments to come, that you might go back to the song and remember that Jesus is on the throne so that when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning with the weight of the world on your shoulder, you can hum this song in your head and be reminded of the reality that Jesus has the reins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just this opportunity to be together and to open your word, to be encouraged by it. We pray today that that we would be a people who would always live in light of this picture of the reigning Christ in heaven. Thank you so much that you reveal him in all of his glory, demonstrating all of those divine attributes so that we know that there is no one greater and we can trust what he says is true. And so we flock to him now, trusting in him for our forgiveness and following him in faith with a life that is transformed in his power. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 